0: Welcome to the ProcureTech Podcast, where we aim to excite and inspire you about how technology will shape our profession's future. I'm your host, James Meads, and I worked in corporate procurement for 16 years before starting my own business as a content creator and consultant in the procurement technology space. I'm deeply convinced that procurement must become less technocratic and embrace the entrepreneurial spirit and creativity If we're ever going to shake off our image of being a process-obsessed, box-ticking function, you definitely won't find vanilla content on here, and we're not afraid to tackle some controversial topics and tell it like it really is. So if that's your thing, now let's jump right into this week's episode. Yes, hello. Very warm welcome to another episode of the ProcureTech podcast. We are the official podcast of procurementsoftware.site, where you can search, filter, and find over 400 procurement technology solutions all in one space and all completely free of charge. Why waste thousands of dollars on a research subscription when you can do 90% of what that does in one place and not have to pay for it, I ask you. But anyway, we're not there to talk about this. We're we're here to talk about something far more interesting than searching procurement technology solutions, and that is the use of generative AI in spend and data analytics applications this week. And my guest today to talk all about this is none other than Mr. Sam Clive, head of product at Rosslyn, who recently actually, when I was at ProcureCon, Uh, delivered a keynote on this topic and I thought it was one of the best presentations that I saw there. Uh, And when I collared Sam later on that day over a coffee, he agreed to come on the podcast and talk a little bit about this. So Sam, very warm welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Okay, so first of all, Sam, if you could just briefly give an overview of your role at Roslyn, and then we'll jump straight in with uh, the experiment that you did with generative AI.
1: Yeah, perfect. So, um, my role within Roslyn is to look after the product strategy. So, I get to spend quite a lot of time with our existing clients, but also with prospects who are looking for uh, a tool like spend analytics, and therefore, I get to take all of that knowledge and understanding from prospects and clients and try and feed that into the product. So we've been around for quite a long time. We've had a product that's been around for quite a long time. But I think the thing is, it always is changing. The market demands are changing. Recently, we've seen uh, a lot more interest in ESG sustainability being pushed down from the board level. And our product should evolve and adapt to deal with those challenges and changes. And so classification, data classification has been a problem or as long as Spend Analytics has been around. And from our perspective at Roslyn, we've historically dealt with this through rules, through processes, but fundamentally it needs people. It needs knowledge to understand where to put the data. Generative AI has given us a slightly different perspective on how we classify data. And part of the project that we've been running over the last few months is to basically test, has this technology advanced enough? Is it mature enough to deal with a lot of the complexity that we see in the classification challenge.
0: Got it. So if you could then maybe explain the challenge that you faced when you set out to do this as an experiment. Because I think what you just said outlines where you've come from historically and how historically spend analytics has been put together. And, and as you very correctly alluded to, some of the push now from the board is, is around sort of sustainability and ESG data. So with that backdrop when you wanted to do this experiment with gen ai what challenges did you face and and how did you go about doing it
1: so i think the the fundamental challenge always comes down to classification so if i take the kind of esg or sustainability angle you need to be able to see your data in a category structure that makes sense and you're confident with and if you don't get that fundamental challenge right it can make the rest of the initiatives quite painful to do. You always get challenges. You always get people saying, I don't quite believe that data. I don't quite believe the output. So to solve the classification problem is probably one of the most important things you could do. But historically, dealing with it through rules and through kind of people actually processing the data, it's very boring. It's very tedious. It's very time consuming to get right. And especially if you're refreshing data, what you don't want to have to do is every single month have people in that process basically doing the classification month in month out. So the challenges we've seen historically have always been the time it takes to to get it right, the time it takes to do it on a regular basis. And also when you've got people that perhaps disagree or have slightly different lenses they want to apply to the data, remapping that, reworking it can often be time consuming and quite painful for organizations and it's fairly common that those types of things happen and then prevent users from or clients from using data for other initiatives elsewhere in the business
0: because then i i suppose that they then lack the confidence that it has a a sort of single way way of sort of verifying that classification if like you say different people have different Thoughts or opinions on on how something should be classified. So, yes. So, how is generative AI different than, to let's say, machine learning and some of the other AI driven technology that has been powering spend analytics platforms up until, let's say, round about the end of 2022 when ChatGPT sort of really became mainstream. Yeah, it's a
1: it's a it's an interesting one, and we've had at Roslyn, we've had plenty of conversations with the Microsofts, the Googles. We've worked with uh, various universities in the UK as well to try and solve this problem using traditional, in quotation marks, traditional AI and machine learning. Um, But there's always been a big challenge around the quality of data that we get, whether it's at the invoice level the purchase order level. The quality has always dictated the success and the output of these more traditional approaches to AI and machine learning. And what we found is either we... There hasn't been a solution to leverage that type of technology in the past because of the data quality, or clients are so variable and the output is so variable. I mean, classification as a whole is very subjective, so it can be very difficult to nail it down to a particular algorithm or a particular um, process. You need almost the flexibility of generative AI to be able to understand different types of content, to be understand and have an understanding of so much more than what you know, a potential traditional algorithm might have had. So what we've seen in this is it's almost a combination of the training that the model has been given. Effectively, most most LLMs are trained on kind of the internet. So it has a fantastic understanding of general knowledge, but its ability to take fairly poor quality data and make the best out of a bad situation is something that I've just not seen in other types of AI and machine learning in the past. And I think this isn't just happening in procurement. It's not just happening in data and spend. I think it's been a massive transformation as to what GPT, ChatGPT especially being you know, the, one of the most well-used applications these days, has given people different perspectives on how to use this type of technology. And that's exactly what we found. You know, Can we test this technology? Is it now mature enough to start dealing with the level of complexity that we see amongst our clients?
0: So if I paraphrase that answer then into a couple of sentences, what you're what you're essentially saying is then that if an organization has historically had pretty poor data, especially at line item level, it now enables you to get to a pretty high percentage. And we'll come into this with the examples that, that you're going to give a little bit later. But it enables that data to be classified correctly first time to a pretty high percentage, which previously with the legacy technology would have been impossible.
1: Yeah, and I think there's um, there's definitely you know a ways to go with this technology. We're still early days, but yeah, I've been surprised myself with some of the output that we've seen with some of the quality of data that we've tested this process with.
0: Awesome. So that kind of leads us nicely on to Walking us through then how you conducted this trial phase from start to finish, because as, as I understand it, uh, you you took a few test customers that that were willing to to be the guinea pigs. So could you maybe walk us through how you went about that and what results you initially saw?
1: Yeah, absolutely, so you're absolutely correct. Um, four of our clients across different enterprises, so it was transportation, pharmaceuticals, media a range of different client types in terms of size, but also industries they worked in, were basically just as keen as us to understand if this technology was now at the the right level. So what we were able to do was um, work with them to identify a data set. So these were random transactions from their data to basically test whether or not the solution could classify in in the right way. So these transactions were randomized, purely because what we didn't want to do is just feed in cherry pit transactions. We wanted to make sure there was a mix of uncategorized data, but also existing categorized data, because that would give us a really good insight as to where it got things exactly the same, where it got things slightly different, and be able to have that conversation with the client as to, is your classification good? Or as Gen AI provided you with something better. So those four clients, we each created a test data set for them and started to process the information. And What I would say is this was a bit of an iterative exercise to figure out the right prompts, the right processes that we needed to go through in order to get accurate results. So after a few of those iterations, we were starting to see some really um, positive results to the point where we could start reviewing them with the client. So what we did was we took the output data, loaded it back into a test instance of the Roslyn application alongside their existing data, and gave them insights as to, what level of the taxonomy had it matched to 100% compared to their existing, um, existing classification. And as part of the process, it also gives output on the justification and the reasoning as to why it's made that decision. And I think that is interesting for me and it kind of plays to the strengths of the generative side of this AI because it can generate an understanding as to why it's made that decision. It's not just a black box where Transactions and taxonomies goes in, and the you know the output comes out. And you have no idea as to why it's made that decision. You can ask it to tell you why it's made that decision, and I think that's a really interesting way in which this technology can be used, almost to help justify why it's made those decisions. So, in terms of what we what we did, we took transactional information. We also took clients' bespoke taxonomies, and basically let the system learn what those transactions were. Let the system uh, understand what the taxonomy was. And fundamentally, it does a bit of similarity matching. So we look at the transactional information. And we're doing this at the line item level. So invoice descriptions, material code descriptions, chart of account descriptions. We can flex the model depending on the data available, but it's using all of that information to then basically try and find a suitable location in the client's taxonomy. And again, this was part of the test. Can it deal with the uniqueness we find in each of the client's taxonomies? Or does it have to deal with a standard like UNSPSC? And I think, frankly, we were a bit surprised that it can deal with the uniqueness of each client taxonomy. It doesn't have to go to a standard like UNSPSE. It absolutely can. It can deal with that complexity, but it can also deal with the bespokenness of client taxonomies as well.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So the, the different industry sectors that you were, that you were testing that this with, I mean, I assume just from the very disparate types of companies that you were doing it with, that they all had their own bespoke client taxonomies, right? Yep. They all have their own. Um,
1: a couple of, couple of the examples, they even had multiple. So uh, we focus just on one for the PAC, but it's fairly common for every single one of our clients to have at least one of their own taxonomy structures.
0: Got it. You, you mentioned UNSPSC in, in, in your last answer, which I, I believe goes down to six levels or degrees of classification. Um, is that typically then the most complex type of classification that you would have to do? I mean, is that pretty much the most complex taxonomy that you would have to deal with?
1: So in terms of, I suppose, size, both horizontally and vertically, so depth of, yes, there's about 160,000 potential locations you could put something in you in SPSC. So if it can deal with that level of taxonomy, it can deal with a three-level taxonomy, a four-level taxonomy. I think the complexity that we often find in a client's taxonomy though is at lower levels you might find a bit of duplication or you might find very similar underlying locations that stuff could go in but only until you start looking at the higher levels do you realize there's a bit of differentiation whereas you and SPSC for all its you know um for all its size and uh, width there are very very specific locations you can put stuff so it's very, very complicated, but there are other types of scenarios in the client bespoke taxonomies that also prevent uh also produce some challenges as well.
0: Yeah. And I'm just thinking back to my corporate days and 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 the material classification or, or group uh, material group classifications that we had in it. And it was confusing and it was quite easy to put things into the wrong group just because, you know, it wasn't particularly well explained. So, yeah, I, I completely get what you're saying about <laughs> about bespoke client taxonomies. I, if I move this on, then classifying suppliers and removing duplicate vendors should be relatively straightforward, especially with the tech that's around now. And like you say, the generative AI, what about when it comes to dealing with line item data? I mean, I'm referring specifically here to things like free text purchase orders, which, you know, if a requisitioner is filling that out, oftentimes their descriptions are notoriously poor. When it comes to trying to what to understand what what's actually being purchased you know if they're if they're filling out a requisition that says you know according to quote number a b c one two three and the only reference point really that you've got is the supplier and the price how does the AI then manage to work with such messy data or do you have an example of of how how they manage to mitigate that
1: yeah it's a it's a challenge there's no two ways about it and the the biggest challenges here across all of our clients is just the variability in data. And you're absolutely right. When we look at descriptive content and either the invoice or the purchase order, sometimes it can be incredibly articulate, and you know you don't need AI to figure out what that transaction is. Sometimes it's either missing, it's blank, or it's you know code that only someone with knowledge of the business would understand and appreciate. So it is very tricky and very challenging. And I think what we tried to do as part of this proof of concept was to focus in at the line item level. So rather than just look at this supplier provides these types of goods and services, therefore we'll put them there. We wanted to look at the transaction line item level. And with that comes a range of different data points. So yes, you've got the descriptive content, like the invoice, the PO descriptions. You've also got master data fields like material groups, which is quite good for direct spend, but perhaps less so for indirect. But you might also have things like chart of accounts. We enrich our data with things like line of business as well to give a bit more of a a generic view on what the transaction is. So there's a whole range of underlying data points that can feed into this process. And what we've basically tried to find is what does that ideal data set look like? And it's an interesting conversation to have with clients because we've got some that don't necessarily trust or want to use things like the GL codes because they know that it's not actually as accurate as they want it to be. So they would weight other fields and other data points higher than GL code. So we wanted to basically test, can it deal with not just the descriptive content, but can it deal with all of the master data around it? And can it also figure out where there's stuff that actually isn't that useful? And I've seen some examples where the system itself has its, basically telling us why it's made that um, choice, it will say, I've discounted the line of business or I've discounted the description because it doesn't mean a lot. It doesn't provide me with much more information than what I've already got from the supplier and from some of these other data points. So it's always useful to have high quality data. It's always useful to have really good descriptions. But what we found is the reality is most of the time client data doesn't include that. And so this type of system has been very surprising when it deals with the missing or the misspelled data. It can deal with a lot of situations like that.
0: Yeah, and and you're absolutely right that 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 is the reality, isn't it? And no matter how strong procurement is in any given organization or or client of yours, they're never going to be able to corral several thousand stakeholders to Diligently use the taxonomy that, that that procurement wants them to use. That's that's just the reality of the world that we live in. Um, one one thing that I'm curious about would with the way that generative AI works in 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 comparison to to machine learning, for example, or some of the 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 older types of of AI driven data classification. Would it be able to, if it had what seems to be an, an, an unintelligible series of letters and numbers that that, that transpires to be a, a material part number for something like Siemens or Schneider Electric or whatever for a spare part, would it be able to, through its knowledge of having essentially read the internet, would it be able to then identify that as, as say, a Siemens part number and classify it as that? Yeah,
1: it's a really interesting point, actually. And it's probably one that I won't lie, probably needs a bit more research to understand to what levels it can go and get that information. But what we've seen is those types of situations can happen. So to give you an example, I've seen a couple of transactions whereby the underlying description isn't in English, it's in Japanese characters. And within that, it's combined a little bit of information from the description and a little bit of information from the material group description and come up with its own generic understanding of what the transaction is. And that generic understanding is then presented back to the user in English. So even as a, a non-Japanese speaker, I'm able to get an understanding as to what this transaction relates to. Now, this can get really interesting when you do have other data sets that you can feed in. So, so far, we focus very much just on the spend data that a client provides us. But if we're also able to feed in more up-to-date information on material codes, on product codes, then that can become really interesting because mm. frankly, yeah, you know, it will use all of that data. It will use all data available, and it can make for some very interesting use cases in the future.
0: Mm, yeah, things like bills <laughs> yeah. of material or or product specs. Or yeah, yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Okay. You mentioned a little bit earlier that the client is able to see why the ai has classed, has classified an item the way it has if then it's made a consistent mistake in the way that it's classified something c- can this be corrected then for multiple line items and then trained so it so it doesn't make that exact same mistake again yeah so there's a couple of things we've looked at for this so uh, at the very start, I said we typically
1: deal with classification at the moment through rules. And rules can be based on any data point, any component you like. And I think there will always be a need for rules in the future so that when you know a mistake is spotted or someone subjectively wants to put it in another location, they're able to easily correct that inside the application. But how the AI is corrected, it comes back to how it's prompted in the first place. And part of the output of the PAC we actually found there was a few things that we needed to adjust in order to make it more accurate in the future. And those types of scenarios where it's either been miscategorized or as being categorized into a subtly different location, how you then prompt the application with different insight, different context as to the transactions it's dealing with can have quite a big impact on the output. And one of these examples we found was um, a transaction with the uh, terminology gas was included. And the system read that as gas and tried to find a location like gases, helium, oxygen, that type of thing. The client was American. So to an American, gas means <laughs> fuel, it means petrol. And as soon as we started to prompt and say, actually, this, is, this company's headquartered in the US, this spend is predominantly from the US, it starts to pick up that actually gas should go into travel expenses, you should go into fuel. And it, it is quite clever in how you prompt it. So we Part of the work we've done is to basically try and identify what are these types of use cases. It might be intercompany spend, it might be zero-value transactions, tax line items. What are these scenarios that cause it problems because it's trying to look at the data on face value? Can we either exclude that data or can we provide it with additional prompting so that it understands where to put that data in the future?
0: It's amazing the opportunities that this could bring, isn't it, over time. What do you think then are the other opportunities beyond just spend analytics that you that you're exploring then as a next step because it, this obviously opens a whole pandora's box doesn't it of what could potentially be be possible in terms of wider data classification yeah absolutely and i think
1: um one of the the kind of next steps that we'll be starting to investigate is how we can bring this data together on mass so at the moment all of our client data is completely separated is completely segregated as it should be from a security perspective. But if we can anonymize that data and standardize its classification, you can then start thinking about benchmarking. So how much am I spending with the supplier versus the market, versus my competitors, versus the wider Roslyn community? How much am I paying for this particular component or raw material? So that type of insight, when you start expanding the data beyond just your own client data, can get quite interesting. And also fundamentally, how we interact with technology and interact with data like spend might also fundamentally change. So ChatGPT has taken the world by storm because of how simple the interface is, because of how accessible it is. Fundamentally, all you have to do is type in a text box at the the highest of levels, and it will give you a response. It will give you some output. Can we start using that type of user experience on an everyday basis where I can simply ask questions of my data? And that goes beyond just spend data. That could go beyond the entire procurement lifecycle. Can I just ask questions at each step in the journey without having to be an expert in data, without having to be an expert in dashboarding? So there's some really interesting use cases that I think we'll start to see coming to life and probably already are coming to life in a lot of product teams, um, but probably coming to market over the next few months.
0: Yeah, so if I understand you correctly, then you're saying that you, the average procurement category manager rather than a data a data analyst could be able to go into these systems and ask them questions around the data that's in there just through using prompts? Absolutely. And I think, you know, we, we
1: should, as technology providers, we should be striving for that. We should be making data as accessible as possible to as many different people in the organization. There will still be a need for the data scientists to do the really complex, the really interesting stuff. But frankly, from a category manager's perspective, you should be able to query your data and understand what are the top five things, the top 10 things you weren't necessarily aware of about your category. Those types of questionings should be available. And, and yeah, we should, as technology providers, aim to bring that type of experience to uh, to the market.
0: Do you think this generative AI-driven spend analytics or wider data analytics, will it make it more affordable to mid-sized businesses? because Spend analytics tools may, may be unfairly, but they tend to have a reputation as being fairly pricey. Do you do you think this technology will enable this? You know, e- even if it's a, a bare bones version, to be more accessible to smaller businesses.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know there, there are barriers to a full blown spend project. You know, data acquisition and extraction processes, refreshes that can often be off putting for the, the SMEs the mid markets. And yeah, I absolutely think this should be a, a use case where someone who has their data already has either extracted it from their single ERP or maybe they've got a couple of ERP systems, but they've, they've got that together and they get some quick insight from the system. And again, classification is the first step in that journey. Here's my raw data, show me it in the category structure that I understand. And then you can start asking questions of the data. So can I start quizzing it to find the top 10 scenarios I hadn't thought about in this information. What are the top 10 risks I should be aware of? So I think those types of scenarios we'll start to see more and more of where a client has a bit of data, they don't necessarily have the wider tools or the, the expertise internally to do something with it, but they can throw it at a service like this where they can get their data back in a much better shape. And I think we'll start to see more and more of that over the coming months.
0: Yeah, 100%. And th- there is always a, a, a critical point where it delivers an ROI, right? I mean, if you're a $10 million business, then why wouldn't you still do your, your analytics in Excel? Because your data is never going to be that complex. But, you know, if you're a $1 to $300 million business where you may have complex data in multiple ERPs through having grown uh, grown by acquisition, then it absolutely does bring cases like this into the forefront if it's available at a at a more affordable price point, or even if companies such as Rosslyn, maybe in the future have have an as a service type model there where where this type of thing is available as a as as a as a paid service without necessarily have to, having to to purchase a, subs- a subscription to a. To, to an analytics software, it opens all sorts of possibilities in terms of new business models that that, that could be viable in future as well I think
1: yeah, and I think the, um, that approach should be the norm moving forward, right? So yes, you might be a small organization that can deal with it in Excel, but if you have people and you're you're effectively wrangling data together or you're wasting time trying to get that data together, it's a perfect situation for this type of technology, you should always try and automate the boring, the tedious, the time consuming tasks. So you can then focus on the more strategic objectives. And even if you are you know, a 10 million or 20 million organization, you'd much rather spend time getting the output rather than having to wrangle the data together in the first place. So absolutely, it's going to happen across the market, I think just a question of when. <laughs> so
0: Sam, just conscious of the time and uh, we need to wrap this up. If uh, anyone would like to learn more about uh, about your case study or about Rosalind in general, uh, where's the best place that we should send them? So feel free to contact me direct. So it's sam.clive at
1: rosalind.ai.
0: Excellent, short and sweet. I love it when someone just gives one source instead of reading off ten different ways that they can get in <laughs> touch. So, uh, thank you for your brevity. Just one last thing before we sign off to anyone that's listening: uh, we now have a quick twenty-minute introductory online course to all things digital procurement called Digital Procurement One Hundred and One. It's available if you go to store. Dot procurement software dot site. It's completely free, just requires an email registration and you can get a very quick lunchtime, lunch break overview into the world of procurement tech if you're wondering where you can learn more and just get a basic overview of what to look out for really and what's out there in the world of digital procurement. So thank you once again for listening to the show and we will see you same time next week. Bye for now.